Please open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 29, verse 2. Psalm 29, verse 2. This morning, like last week, we'll be looking at a topic of the basic Christian life. And uh, in doing that, there's no way that we can go to every passage of Scripture that deals with the topic. I'd like to speak this morning on worshiping God correctly. And so because we don't have enough time to look at all of this, I'd like to start with this one verse, Psalm 29, verse 2. It's a very interesting verse, especially as we uh, look at the words closely. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The first phrase there, give glory due his name, is to give praise to him because of his name. The Bible gives a lot of names of our Lord, and uh, that's so that we can understand the, the many different uh, facets of his character. His name represents his character, and so his character is worthy of glory, and so we give him that. It's, he's, he's worth that. Uh, worship. Word is the most common word for worship in the Old Testament. It's to fall prostrate before him, to lie flat on the ground with your face down in adoration, in obedience. And then in the beauty of holiness. Here there are only two Hebrew words. Those two words are found five times in the Old Testament. And I confess that as I've thought of that, I've thought about the beauty of God's holiness. He is absolutely holy, and there is beauty in that. But the wording here seems to describe that not his holiness, but our approach to God in worship should be holy. Uh, some have translated that in holy array. One commentator, Leupold, says, it is the connotation of the verb worship. The expression in holy array borrows the picture from earthly ministrants who were according to Old Testament regulations to appear for service in God's sanctuary only when properly vested. And there are verses that talk about the priest's garments and the singer's robes. He goes on, the idea is transferred to the area of heaven where the thought becomes this, they too should appear before the Lord in proper array. And so the beauty of holiness by which we worship God is our attitude as we come to him. That should be holy in its character, in its nature. Now let me start this message by some of the, bringing out some of the misconceptions of what people think worship is. There are a lot of different ideas about worship, and you go into many different churches and find that they worship differently. Uh, there have been articles written over the last 20 years about worship wars, and you can look at that. And uh, uh, there's this conflict between traditional and contemporary worship styles. The battle lines of those uh, worship wars are generally drawn between uh, what kind of music we use, uh, that is, contemporary Christian music or traditional hymns, uh, how we dress, do we just come casually or do we dress up when we come to church? Uh, third, how we conduct our services. Are they reverent in their, in their atmosphere or are they informal? And the issue really comes down to this question. Does God care how we worship him or is it okay to come any way that we'd like? Does it really matter how we come? Can casual worship be reverent worship? 
Well, our services here at Grace are not designed to make people feel comfortable. You can say, well, it's a little cool this morning. I, I agree with you. No. Uh, I, I'm saying that we want to be friendly. We want to make people feel welcome. We want things to be comfortable as far as the seating and the temperature. But we have not tailored the services around the perceived needs of people, that is, their own self-perceived needs. We are here to worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And that's really different than anything the world gathers to do today. A person who's unfamiliar with that might feel a little bit out of place. But they shouldn't have any doubt about why we assemble and what we're doing. Let me list some of the modern misconceptions about worship. Number one, that we, whenever we gather together in a building as believers, we're worshiping. Corporate worship, that is, as a, as a church body, only takes place when individual Christians are worshiping the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan writes, if I have not been worshiping God for the last six days, I cannot worship him this morning. If there's been no song in my life to God, I'm not prepared to sing his praise. The worship of the sanctuary is wholly meaningless and valueless, save as it is preceded and prepared for by the worship of the life. And so the question comes, did we just come to worship or have you been worshiping the Lord all this week? Has he been your primary focus? Have you given him glory and praise for who he is? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so it's not just this spiritual robe that we put on and, and we come into his presence, but it's an everyday recognition of that presence. An ongoing part of our lives. Not just a one-day experience. So worship is not something that happens just because you're here at church. It should take place all the time in your life. Misconception number two. That worship is a demonstration of emotion. Now, while emotions are sometimes affected by genuine worship, they don't validate or invalidate that worship has taken place. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this point by, uh, by using a wagon train as a picture. The wagons that used to travel across the, the west would stir up a lot of dust as they traveled west. That was just a result of something that was a byproduct of the, of the wagon train moving across the desert. But he said people can go out with brooms and stir up a lot of dust. But it doesn't mean that any progress is taking place. It doesn't necessarily mean they're getting anywhere. So we can't say that because our emotions have been stirred that God is at work and we were worshiping him. But when God is at work, emotions may be stirred. Emotions are not proof of true worship. Listen to how Paul describes his prayer and singing in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So praying and singing should not be done without thought. And Pastor Brian often reminds us, think of these words as you look at this hymn and as you sing that, make sure that it's from your heart. And so we pray and we sing with the understanding, with the intellect, but we also 
pray with this spiritual level. But again, emotions being stirred is not a proof that, boy, that felt good. When I go home, I must have been worshiping the Lord. The third misconception is that true worship revolves around anything or anyone but God. Genuine worship is never anything that puts focus on men, uh, not on angels, not on a building. Uh, We don't worship anything but the one who deserves worship, and that's God. True worship exalts and magnifies only God. God made us for that purpose. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, it says, I have created him, that is, created man in the context, for my glory. The Westminster Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. God made us for his glory. God also won't share his glory with anyone else. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, right at the end, was corrected because he fell down and he worshipped the angel that gave him the message. He says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I, heard and, when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. There's a lot of false worship today because people are not worshiping God. They're worshiping an experience. They're worshiping people, things. God is to be worshiped. He alone is worthy. In a footnote about worship, uh, Wayne Grudem writes this. Few things destroy an atmosphere of worship more quickly than a soloist or choir who enjoy drawing attention to themselves or a preacher who parades his own intelligence or skill in speaking. We worship God. Fourth misconception that worship can only take place when things are going smoothly in our lives. Sometimes we come together and we have been praying for each other about some great needs, some physical needs. Some things that God has seemingly not answered the way we thought. He, he could, we know that he can, but not that he did. And so the question comes, can I still come to God in a worshipful atmosphere? Can I still give him praise when things are not working out in my life the way it would be nice that they worked out? Can you worship him in your illness, in your sorrow, in your financial need? You can when you recognize that he is the one who is worshipped. And he never changes. And although the, the circumstances of your life may seem like valleys and mountain peaks, God never changes. And he's in control of every detail of your life. I love what Job was able to say. It's the only time the word worship is mentioned in the book of Job, and it's in the very first chapter, Job 120. It says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. You say, what, what was it that brought Job to that place? What experience was going on in his life? Well, he just had messengers come in, one right after another, 
to deliver the kinds of news. His livestock had been stolen. Some were killed. His servants were killed. His servants died in a sudden thunderstorm or windstorm. And yet he worships. So worship is not based on life going smoothly. Worship says, Lord, whatever you do, I'm going to praise you because you alone are God and you're unchanging. So in review of these misconceptions, it's not something that only takes place in church. It's not an external display of emotions. It's an internal attitude toward God. It's not anything or it's not about anything or anyone. It's to be God alone who's worshipped. He has to be the center of all of our worship. And it's not about giving God praise for doing things that are pleasant to us. It's about praising him because of who he is. Let's look next at the biblical warnings about worshiping in the wrong way. We'll look at two in the New Testament and then one in the Old. There are things that are diametrically opposed to worship and must be removed from our worship. It's wrong to use God for any kind of self-advancement. Jesus cleansed the temple of those who were using his house as a house of merchandise or a place to make money. He drove those marketers, the money changers, uh, from the temple. And he said in Matthew 21, 13, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. This church, any church, when you go into worship, it's not a place where you can advance your business. It's not a place where you make money or promote yourself or advance even your own personal agenda. True worship advances the glory of God and his kingdom. Second, it's wrong to think of worship as, as being in a place instead of a person. Jesus had an interesting conversation with the woman at Samaria. In John chapter 4, it's captured. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, she says to him. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. She made the mistake that a lot of people make. If I go here, then I'll be worshiping the Lord. The Lord said, it's not about where. It's about who. One last uh, reference in the Old Testament, Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. We have a striking example here about worshiping in the wrong way in what God did because of that. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. The word strange there is unauthorized fire. It wasn't the way God had commanded it, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. Does it matter? How we approach God in worship? Absolutely. We come the way that God tells us to come. What were some of the reasons here? 
that they were punished in such a way. They'd been taught the right way to approach God. Aaron was their father. He was the high priest. The task of offering the incense was not theirs. It was Aaron's job to do as a high priest. They used their own censers. It was Aaron's censer that had been sanctified for that specific purpose. They didn't offer it on the Day of Atonement. The incense was taken from the brazen altar. They supplied their own fire. It really does matter how we come to God in worship. Now, in the last section, I'd just like to go through passages that talk about worship in, in, the, in the passage, the meaning of worship. Now, in the English language, now the word worship was first used around the 12th century, and it described the reverence paid to a supernatural being. It originates from the old English word worth, the condition of being worthy, of having dignity or glory, of deserving honor. And so when we worship God, we tell him what he is worth. We, uh, we estimate his value. We recognize the status of a person. We re realize the object of worship deserves our honor, our reverence. So that's the English language. In the Old, Test Old Testament vocabulary in the Hebrew, the primary word that's used there is used 170 times. It's the one that we saw in Psalm 29 at the beginning of the message. And it means to sink down, to prostrate oneself. It's first used in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. There, three men appeared to Abram, Abraham. One was the Lord. It was Abram, wasn't it? Before they gave the promise. One was the Lord. It says it specifically in the text, Genesis 18, 1. And the other were two angels. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he, saw, he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood before him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And the word bow there is that word that's translated worship in 170 times in the Old Testament. The word often appears with other words that uh, tell us what worship is like. Um, it's used with the word for head or skull in Exodus 34.8, and Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. It's also used or found with the word uh, to bend the knee, to sink, to fall down. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, it's a wonderful description of Solomon. He made an end of praying. The fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, the temples being dedicated to the Lord. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And that word bowed there that, come, that appears with the worship is this word that means to bend the knee, to sink, to fall down. There's also one other word that shows up with worship in the Old Testament, and it's the word barak, which means to bless and also to kneel. In Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel. And that's the word barak, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. 
So all of these words taken together give us an idea of what it meant to worship in the Old Testament. The one thing that the Bible says that worshipers did that I don't see happening a lot of today is to bow in reverence, to fall down on our face before him. Now, we don't do that in public. It's a little bit out of place, but it shouldn't be in our lives. You say, well, if I kneel down, I may not be able to get back up again. (laughs) Maybe that's not a bad thing. (laughs) We need to fall on our faces before him. Now, I believe this kneeling is is an outward demonstration, but it's really the heart attitude that's important. You can kneel and not really be worshiping, but you can't worship and not have a a kneeling heart. It's a sign of our submission, our adoration, our humility before God, because we're aware of his presence. Of who he is. That's worship. In New Testament vocabulary, we have three different words translated worship. The word uh, proskuneo means to prostrate oneself in reverence, to adore. It's first used in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Magi came and they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. I had a professor in college who used to say, Worshippers in the Bible never came empty-handed. And as we worship God, we want to bring him something, even if it's the fruit of our lips is his reward. When they arrived, these magi at the home of Jesus, the Bible says they worshipped him with their gifts, Matthew 2, 11. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. To adore. Another word means to serve. Worshiping in the New Testament has the idea of serving. Latruo, we get our word liturgy from that, to minister. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 28 is one of those uses. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so that worship is serving Another nuance of worship in the New Testament is a word that means to show reverence. It's found in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This one's only used ten times in the the New Testament. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. To show reverence, to serve, to adore to prostrate yourself before one whom you love and you recognize his worth. That's biblical worship. A reverent adoration in the hearts and minds of God's people because of an understanding of who God is as as revealed in the Holy Bible. Now, if we're worshiping God correctly, we're going to have a greater desire to live in obedience to him We'll have a greater love for him. We'll have a greater commitment to serve him. And so worship isn't just one aspect of our life that doesn't affect anything else. It affects everything. That's why it's important. People often say, what would you do if you were to come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ today? I've heard a lot of answers to that question. 
Let's go to the Bible and find out how three men reacted. Isaiah, you saw the Lord on his throne. What did you do? Then said I, Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. <laughs> the Hebrew words, Oi nidmeti, I am undone. I am totally, I am doomed to die. Why? Because I recognize the one before whom I stand, the Lord of hosts. And I recognize my own sinfulness. John, tell us what you did when you saw the Lord. You knew you were in his presence. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Simon Peter, how did you respond when your net was about to break and you knew that you were in the presence of Christ? He says, I fell down on Jesus, at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Worship is recognizing God for who he is. Go through his attributes. Enumerate them in your heart and in your mind. It's simply elevating God to his rightful place. It's making God the center of all of our praise. As we bow our heads this morning, I ask you, is your heart bowed to him today? First of all, have you ever trusted him as your personal savior? Do you know with absolute certainty that when you take your last breath here, you'll wake up in his presence? You can only worship him aright if you come to him and trust him as your savior. We'll have an invitation hymn in a moment. And we invite you to come forward and let someone take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you have come to Christ in salvation, that your sins are forgiven, that your home in heaven is certain. Maybe you're a Christian. And the question for each of us today, have we been worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Do we just go through these external rituals or are we motivated to serve him, to obey him, to love him because he's worthy of all worship and praise? Father in heaven, we ask today that we'll reevaluate our lives and how we ascribe praise and glory and honor and worth to you in our daily lives. And I pray that we won't live a day without truly worshiping you correctly. And as we do that as individuals, when we come into a court per place on Sunday like this, I pray that the worship that we bring will be sweet to you. That you'll see hearts that are totally devoted and committed to you. That there won't be any mixture of any other worship in our lives but to you alone. We pray that you'll work in this invitation time. Help us to make the changes that you, through your word and your spirit, have encouraged us to change. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.